0: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, vice president of the Commonwealth Club and leader of our new climate change initiative. Today, we're discussing global climate change and economic growth and equity. The United Nations Development Program just released a report on climate change here at the Commonwealth Club, and we have a distinguished panel of experts to discuss how countries and people around the world can sink carbon while raising living standards, particularly among the world's poorest citizens. Our panel includes Dr. Larry Brilliant, Executive Director of Google.org. During his multifaceted career, Dr. Brilliant has been a technology entrepreneur and CEO, and helped lead a World Health Organization pro- program to eradicate smallpox. Ad Melkert is Under Secretary General of the United Nations. He is also Associate Administrator of the United Nations Development Program. Prior to joining the UN, Mr. Melkert was on the board of the World Bank, where he was an executive director, and he had a career in the Dutch Labor Party, serving as a member of Parliament and Minister of Social Affairs and Employment. Nancy Fund is a managing director at J.P. Morgan. She co-heads J.P. Morgan's $75 million Bay Area Equity Fund, a double bottom line private equity fund that invests in startup companies located in or near lower income neighborhoods in the San Francisco Bay Area. The first President Bush and President Clinton both appointed her to national advisory boards on technology and education. Andrea Gardner is Sustainable Solutions Manager at CH2M Hill, a $5 billion engineering firm that designs large factories, power plants, water systems, et cetera, around the world. She trains engineers and scientists and planners in the basic concepts of sustainable energy and advises on applying sustainable sustainability to the firm's projects. She told us earlier she also drives a car powered by French fry oil. Is that right? Yeah. Potato oil. So please welcome our panelists. Mr. Melkert, let's begin with you. We've heard a lot about the science and economics of climate change, and this report puts a human face on global warming. It opens with a quote from Martin Luther King and frames climate change as a human rights issue. Could you explain that view of the link between climate change and human liberty? Well, thank you, Greg, first of all, for for being in this meeting,
1: large turnout, distinguished panel, and really the attention for the topic that is badly needed, and it's more than science and economy. The climate panel of the UN has uh, really underscored, and there's now near consensus in the world, that there is a big issue. Um, Professor Nick Stern has made a landmark economic report showing the economic consequences and opportunities. And now we show the the human consequences, the human suffering, but also the human opportunities to deal with um, the consequences of climate change and to try to set an agenda that will take us far into the 21st century and uh, addressing all the issues. And uh, this comes at a moment that um, we really see something changing. There will be a big meeting in Bali uh, next month, Um, and the tone for that meeting has been set now by the uh, Australian electorate. Uh, I dare say that this is the first elections in history that has been decided by climate change, and it's a very welcome development. And what we would like to see in Bali and that is what this report, uh, Human Solidarity in a Divided World, wants to advocate, is that we know that it's a problem of the rich industrialized world. That is to say, a problem to address, to solve. But the real issue is with many people in particularly sub-Saharan Africa, large parts of Asia and parts of Latin America, that suffer the consequences of droughts, of floods, of weather events, of uh, reduced agricultural production, of, in summary, um, less um, space for development just at the time that many economies in the developing world are picking up as never before. And we need to turn that around, and that is the message of this report.
0: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Brilliant, uh, how will climate change affect the poor people, and what are you doing at Google.org to address some of the things that uh, that Mr. Melker just mentioned?
2: Thank you, Greg. It's really nice to be here and see so many friends in the audience. Um, You know, know, I I think to give you an idea of the difference between the way we have uh, the luxury to look at climate change in the West and the way it looks to a poor farmer in Tanzania— or a fisherman in Tamil Nadu, even the tenses we use to describe it are different. We say it will happen to our children or our grandchildren. We say there's an inflection point. We argue if it's 10 years from now or 50 years from now. We argue whether we'll see melting of the glaciers in 50 or 100 years. We're using the future tense. But if you're a farmer in Tanzania or a farmer in Andhra Pradesh, the tense is the present tense. There have been 20,000 suicides in Andhra Pradesh in India. Farmers can't produce enough calories of food per hectare of land compared to what they used to do in the past. And climate change morally is a problem that hits the poor and the weak the hardest. And it almost doesn't matter what variable you look at, whether it's drinking water, floods, crop yields, nutrition, or vector-borne diseases of malaria. It's the poor in the developing countries who will be hurt the most. And just just to give you an idea of the irony of it, Muhammad Yunus, who won the Nobel Prize for this amazing thing that he has done with microcredit, everything that he has done, the 5 million women to whom Grameen Bank have given loans in Bangladesh, all that could be washed away if there's a rise of 2 meters in sea level. In fact, I was just reading a statistic watching these floods Mm -hmm. that... Each millimeter rise in sea level corresponds to 1.5 meters of shoreline loss. That means the one meter of sea level rise, which is the most optimistic projection that I've seen, corresponds to one mile of seashore rise. That means Sausalito. It means we don't have to worry too much about the shape of the 9-11 memorial because it'll be underwater. These are the things that affect people in Tanzania and the coast of Africa and India the greatest. So Google.org is trying to look at those issues. We're certainly looking at malaria. Last year, one and a half million children died of malaria. That number could double or triple or more as the Anopheles mosquito is now able to live at higher altitudes. It won't have the seasonal die-off from the winters that won't take place. We need to look at those issues. We need to look at salt in the water. To some extent, climate change is an issue about drinking water. We may be worried more about peak water than peak oil 50 years from now. So we're investing heavily in that. And this morning, Google announced that we will be investing heavily in renewable energies in a quest to make electricity from renewable energy cheaper than electricity from coal, which is one part of the solution.
0: Thank you. Nancy Fund, you manage a a fund that invests in startup companies that aim to make money while also protecting the environment and perhaps cleaning it up. What role can startups and private companies play in addressing these concerns we're talking about?
3: Well, I think that startups can... Pursue innovative solutions to the the vast problems that we we face in in trying to turn the climate change equation around. Uh, startups can't do it alone. I think there's a key requirement for leadership in public policy to set the the conditions that then make investors attracted to to innovative products. But certainly, startups, as and especially where we live here in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area have shown us that they can scale major change. Uh, and so what startups in this area and, and really throughout the world are doing is is pursuing technologies such as biofuels or large-scale solar or, or new forms of um, PV or other materials that bring the cost of, of solar down to a more accessible level. These are all of the tools that we need going forward to tackle the, pro- the kinds of problems that we face. And because they are um, private sector solutions, um, although I want to stress that they do depend on, on good public policy, they are able to scale. They are able to grow and hire people and and, and expand. And I think that that will be the key in, in correcting some of these problems on a global scale because you really do need that, that size of investment, that, that, that global approach uh, to, to tackle something like this.
0: Thank you. Andrea Gardner, you work for a $5 billion global firm, uh, and which is involved in something called the Business Council on Climate Change, which is connected to the United Nations. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort and how the large companies are trying to reduce their, their carbon emissions?
4: Sure. I also want to uh, re, uh, restate that it is a privilege to be on this panel, and thank you all for your time uh, to be here today. Uh, the Business Council on Climate Change uh, is an organization of Bay Area businesses who want to take action now uh, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and make a positive effect on climate change. And it, within the United States, as we know, the federal government hasn't necessarily taken the actions and the steps we'd like to see to help address this problem, and a lot is going on at the local level now, and this is a good example of that. city of San Francisco is participating in the UN Global Compact Cities Pilot Programme. And this is one of the efforts they've initiated uh, to address and achieve some of the goals that they want to, including a 20 percent reduction in the city's greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2020, I believe. Um, the barrier business, excuse me, the uh, Business Council on Climate Change, uh, we've established uh, a framework um, of principles to which all the members have committed themselves, and these are members that range from companies like ours, uh, five billion global companies down to uh, small companies of two or three members, all of whom really want to make a difference and start taking action. We've established an advisory committee uh, that has set up working groups, um, established goals and objectives for those working groups, and we're now moving forward on implementing those. And the key of this is the businesses working together to help each other. It's easy to um, look up ideas about things you can do and energy efficiency and so on, To reduce your own greenhouse gas emissions, but there's a lot of challenges in actually implementing these programs, and this is a forum from which we can learn from each other. And the hope is that this is a model that can be, this framework be taken to other cities and other regions in the U.S. and around the world and be used for businesses to take action there.
0: Great. Thanks. I'd like to begin our joint discussion sort of starting on the high ground and, and talk about whether there's sort of a, a moral dimension to this, whether the, the large industrialized countries that have uh, emitted so much pollution have a moral imperative or obligation to address these things, and what's the balance between uh, sort of the morals and, and the market, for, for anyone who'd like to, uh, to address that. And. Well,
1: I'd certainly like to start because the, uh, the, the moral responsibility is, is there. I mean, one cannot deny that the, the consequences of the Industrial Revolution, they all stem from what has happened in just a limited part of the world, with just um, a minority of world citizens involved and benefiting from that Industrial Revolution. Now these days we see a rapid change with the industrialization of China and India and other countries that is um, radically changing the world. But the consequences of the uh, industrialization of the past two centuries uh, are there now and will be there now for the next 100 years or so. And therefore there's, there's now a double-edged sword. It's the moral side, but it's also the survival side, which brings then developing and developed countries in one basket, because it's certainly also our interest and China's interest to bring all of us together in uh, working out a global compact, indeed, on um, um, uh, addressing the consequences of uh, climate change. So it starts with the moral argument, but there is now a very strong economic, and survival argument at stake, and that brings the world community together as never before. Anyone
2: else on that, Larry? Well, I I think Ed said it perfectly. Um, If you take a look at China, uh, what the Chinese have done in the last 30 years is historic, amazing. 300 million people pulled out of poverty and into the middle class. That's an accomplishment greater than the pyramids, greater than almost anything you can think of in history. But there's 300 million more waiting in line and 300 million more behind them and then 300 million more. And in order to get that next 300 million out of poverty, China has to sustain a growth rate which is really double digits. It's hard to imagine how else you create the jobs that bring people out of poverty. And how do you do that? How do you sustain that growth rate unless you burn coal, which is what they're doing now? And when you talk to the Chinese or you talk to Indians and you say, but what about global pollution? They'll say, what about you? We don't have the moral standing to even begin that conversation because you know Africa has produced less than 2% of the greenhouse gases. It's kind of hard to go to Africa from the United States and say, what about you? So it's, it's, it's a moral issue. It's an issue of responsibility even more than morality. We have a fiduciary responsibility to the world. We have to solve this problem. We, we can't go and say to the Chinese or to the Indians or the Africans, no, you can't bring more people out of poverty. That's not the right way to do it. We have to look here. We have to look at ourselves. We have to find the solutions here.
0: So would anyone go so far as to say that there is a right to pollute, that there is an equal right among everyone to, to pollute?
1: Well, there's an inevitability to, to pollute when you 're without electricity, um, you want you want to get connected now, sometimes I just saw it myself in, in Nepal. You can do that with with running water from the mountains, and that 's great, but there are also places where you need coal or uh, another classic fuel to, to get your electricity uh, and there 's a right for people, yes, I dare say there 's a right for people to have a, a minimum standard. Of um, decent living possible for them and that will take its toll but the levels that we're talking about are incomparable with the carbon footprints that are out here in the US in Canada or in Europe the difference in carbon footprint between the US and Ethiopia is 200 fold and that's what we're talking about so let's not turn around the argument we can provide access to electricity and we should do it for all the poor that are lacking it now and at the same time we are able to address the consequences of climate change because they start with us
0: at our level. Isn't it also true that the energy intensity or the carbon footprint of European countries that have living standards, material living standards comparable to the US, they have comparable living standards but lower energy consumption. Is that also the case? Yes, it is the case. (laughs) Um, So we don't have to sacrifice. Yeah,
1: although, I mean, there's a a variety of situations in in Europe, but in the report we also show that uh, there's still quite a difference between the carbon footprint in North America and in most of the uh, European countries, difference of two or three folds, which really is quite huge, but also in Europe. The task to live up to the standards and the standard that we propose for 2050 is still a very huge uh, task ahead, and they're still far away from um, achieving it.
3: Can I just, not to be too provincial, but I I do think that it's important to point out, and it relates to my earlier comment about the importance of public policy, that California is actually an exception to the rule in terms of over the past 30 years, while our population has grown and our output has grown, our per capita energy consumption has stayed fairly constant, and it's because of the leadership of groups like the California Energy Commission, the uh, Public Utilities Commission, that really did take a lead way back in the 70s um, to enforce standards for energy efficiency in appliances and moved from there to today, where we have renewable portfolio standards that are encouraging, uh, requiring, and, and getting utilities to, to really... Uh, tackle the problem of uh, introducing more renewables into their energy mix. And so we're seeing large-scale solar plants being built. We're seeing incentives for PV. Uh, so that I, I think we have a really uh, extraordinary lesson in, in California's 30 years of, of policy. We're not perfect, obviously, but we do have some lessons here at home to 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 create a sense of hope um, in in a way that the Europeans have more explicitly.
1: Well, let let me even go beyond that. I think California is really ahead of European countries, and also with your Global Warming Solutions Act, you're really setting uh, in many ways the, the tone and the pace of what is needed also in Europe. Andrea, did you want
4: to... Yeah, just a quick comment. And you had um, said, do, do we think there's a right to pollute uh, as a basis of the discussion? But I, I think that's not the best way to look at it. As, as Dr. Melkert said, it's, it's the right to some basic standards of living. And I think framing it in that rather than the right to pollute could potentially open a lot more solutions.
0: Sure. So we're talking about the, the interaction between policy and, and business. If Nancy, I understand you were sort of saying that, that policy needs to be out front and create an environment where businesses can do their thing. So policy le- leaders and then business leaders step in behind that. Is that?
3: Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's too much to ask uh, a utility which is you know h- historically has been a re- regulated business so it sort of does things the same way to all of a sudden you know launch into sc- solar i mean without there being certain uh, policies that encourage them to do that and so i think that the genius of of what california did over the past uh, few decades is to you know s- implement policies like renewable portfolio standards that require utilities to find renewable sources in- and as- of energy and so what that does is it sends a signal to the marketplace to investors to venture capitalists to that the whole community that hey this is serious there's um, you know we 're a large energy user here in the state so there 's a, a lot of um, power that needs to come from renewables. So we need to do some investing in order to make this happen because the tools are not there. So um, with that, you get the venture capital community to take the risk um, and to invest in these companies. And they wouldn't do it, frankly. We wouldn't do it if we didn't see those RPS policies, if we didn't see AB 32, if we didn't see that that roadmap ahead that says the future will be very different than the past, you wouldn't see investors turning to the sector, and then you wouldn't have 400 megawatt plants being built in the Mojave Desert you know, over the next 10 years that are going to you know, allow utilities to draw some of their power from solar. And then you wouldn't be able to take that plant, make it even cheaper, and put it in North Africa somewhere. Right.
0: Larry, that might be a chance to talk a little more about Google becoming an energy company. Why is it doing it? What does it expect out of it? And
2: Well, thanks for that softball question.
0: <laughs> I got hardballs later. Don't worry. <laughs>
2: um, Google uh, this morning announced that uh, we were going to make uh, Google.org was going to make a series of investments in a lot of the kinds of companies that Nancy is way ahead of us on and has invested in some great companies. And there's some wonderful companies out there. But we also announced that um, as we grow and we consume more energy, we're aware that we're becoming part of the problem, and we don't want to be part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. So we're going to invest heavily and build an internal R&D effort so we can make renewable electricity for us and for others at prices cheaper than coal. And I think that's really the benchmark. While venture capitalists are pouring lots of money into great companies, the goal of which is to reduce the price per kilowatt hour of renewable energy, electricity from renewable energies, it really has to be a price that's less than coal. I lived in India 10 years. I I can assure you every single lump of coal in India will be burned if there isn't a cheaper solution for heat and power and light. So we have to have that. And Google's announcement today is that we've got 8,000 engineers. Usually they're doing something else. But we're going to try to do everything we can to add to be one of the many, many groups that's trying to solve these problems by trying to build much lower-cost renewable energy. (coughs)
0: We have a question here from our audience about an aspect of this that's often overlooked, and that is, is there any connection between global warming and human population growth rates? The population of the Earth projected to grow from, what, 6 to 9 billion? Can I
2: grab that one? So not very far from here in Stanford in the 1950s, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb, um, and he projected that by today's date there would be 20 billion people living on Earth. Well, in fact, there's 6.5 billion, and we've dodged that bullet. Uh, In fact, all the projections say that we will level off at about 9, 9.5 billion people. The problem is we may be 9 billion and not 20 billion, but we eat like we were 20 billion, and we have a carbon footprint like we were 20 billion, and we didn't know what a carbon footprint was then. So there's very definitely a relationship. And, you know, you can just look at all the different... Um, indices. uh, 30 years ago, China had 1 billion people. Today, it's 1.35 billion, a 35% growth rate. But 30 years ago, China had less than 50 million chickens. And today, it's got uh, 15 billion chickens. So people are consuming more proteins. We have a much greater lifestyle. Of course, there's a more than linear relationship between the growth of the population and the carbon footprint that we've created.
0: Question here about what can realistically be expected from the Bali talks, and perhaps we could tie these together. Will the next round of international discussions about climate change include things such as population and these other, other dimensions, Mr. Melker?
1: Well, ba- Bali is really meant to be the the start uh, of a process of one or two years um, to um, pull together the world community behind a new treaty because the Kyoto Treaty, which was in fact the first effort to address uh, climate change at a global level, will expire in its operational commitments um, after 2012. So uh, it's really high time to uh, get something new on the table. And um, I think the the prospects for Bali uh, are increasingly good because uh, the climate um, change panel of the UN has has now been really very authoritative in saying that uh, nobody can any longer ignore the issue. I referred to the uh, Australian elections. It's really a very important and extremely welcome signal at the eve of Bali that now the new prime minister has said, I will go to Bali, be there myself, and commit my country to cooperate. It's a major breakthrough in my view. And then um, uh, I, I also have seen in, in the U.S. Uh, a lot of, of change. California is extremely important. What has happened here, also in other states, uh, in New York where I'm living, there's quite a lot going on. Um, President Bush accepted um, an invitation by the Secretary General to join a dinner last September to discuss this. One can of course say, well, what what is in it? Just a dinner. Uh, But one can also see it from another angle and say it was a breakthrough, that it was a recognition that something has to be done, some commitment has to be shown. And I believe that uh, the successor to Kyoto will really be a worldwide subscribed to new treaty. And when I say worldwide, it's important not to look only at the uh, Europeans and the North Americans, but also this time China India, Brazil, Um, certainly they can um, uh, claim a different approach, a staged approach, uh, another level of contribution to the solution of the problem, but they have to be part of the solution because otherwise we will try to solve something in the north and we will run behind the facts in the south.
0: You welcome Australia joining the the, uh, Kyoto regime. However, I believe most countries that signed it are not meeting the targets. Uh, So what will be the real benefit of Australia joining? And will the next round have some penalties for countries that sign but don't meet the the guidelines that they promised to meet?
1: Well, the situation is even worse because quite a few countries who signed up to Kyoto have not uh, achieved the goals, including in uh, in Europe – Um, So a lot more has to be done. But when we compare the situation now with around the 1990s, which was really the first wave of awareness and of action, a lot has changed. And the, the feeling that something very fundamental is going on is now very widely acknowledged, and that was certainly not the case around the 1990s. So I think the basis is a lot stronger. There's much more investment these days... In, in science, in technology, and in capital to try to contribute to finding solutions and the composition of this panel is really also um, uh, is, is a testimony of that. And then, um, if the world now would finally be able to rally together without exceptions, it will also be easier to create a level playing field that really will make more progress um, uh, possible And finally, on on penalties, Um, I I think that there are good examples to learn that penalties may sometimes help, but most of the times is not the key. Let me just give you one example, which is very relevant for this discussion. In 1987, there was the Montreal Treaty uh, on the ozone layer, which was then the big issue. Now, there was recently in September a meeting on 20 years' anniversary of the protocol, And it is amazing what has been achieved. 95% of the objectives worldwide without any exception has been achieved and without penalties, but just by setting a very clear target and rallying technology, capital, science and citizens' involvement behind that goal. So that should also be possible with addressing climate change and the greenhouse gases.
0: We've been talking about California as a leader and lauding some of its accomplishments. One question from the audience says, global carbon emissions are 45 billion tons per year and projected to grow to 70 billion by 2030. If AB 32, which is the California greenhouse law, uh, is effective, it will reduce only a small portion of that. So is AB 32 really going to mean meaningful change, or is it just a feel-good measure to to address our, our conscience?
3: I I think it's going to revolutionize the way the world thinks about these these issues. I mean, we all know that when things happen in California, they get watched and copied elsewhere in the world, and you're already seeing states that you wouldn't even expect. North Carolina coming up with their own carbon footprint policies and such. So I I can't um, say emphatically enough that what what California does is important beyond its its own consumption trends and yet it is as the largest state a, a key player in our our national emissions and so anything in 30 in this report it, it points out that 30 percent of, of carbon load comes from personal transportation and we we see that every day uh, here in California and anything we can do to you know drive electric vehicles drive alternative um, transportation modalities we're, we're really going to make an impact Act on, on the largest state and the largest producer of, of, of uh, personal transportation um, emissions, but then also um, this replication that we'll see throughout the world I think is extremely important.
0: We're discussing global climate change at the Commonwealth Club, and our panelists are Larry Brilliant, Executive Director of Google.org, Ad Melkert, Undersecretary General of the United Nations, Nancy Fund, Managing Director at JP Morgan, and Andrea Gardner, Sustainable Solutions Manager at CH2. M. Hill. The amount of change required here is so staggering. Who's going to be the biggest driver of this change? Is it going to be private companies? Is it going to be international organizations? Can they move fast enough? Is it going to be state state governments? Who's going to really be out front on this? Larry? Yeah,
2: I think it's got to be all of them, but going back to what Nancy said, um, AB 32 really is revolutionary in the United States, and last I heard, 35 or 40 percent of the states have model legislation that's exactly the same as AB 32. And we may be in a situation when the federal government is non-responsive of having the state governments enact that legislation and percolating it up to the top so that when you have that many state houses that have come on board, then the feds will have to come on board. So that's, I think that's one of the major actors
0: in this drama. But there are those who say no matter what the U.S. does, as you mentioned, coal and China and India can blow everything away. So how do we address that? By by having them, first of
1: all, in the international engagement. I mean, let's not forget they were out of the Kyoto commitment, and this is going to be a new step. And secondly, by also stepping up um, cooperation, uh, transfer of technology, Uh, I think the capital, particularly in in China and India, will do uh, a lot to bring it to the places where it really will um, lead to a lot of benefits provided that clear ceilings are set and governments also subscribe to those ceilings. That must not only be a matter here, that is also for New Delhi and for Beijing uh, really the thing uh, to do. And in in that sense, uh, it's still a very open issue, uh, also in the Bali conference next month, because it's actually the first time that we're going to ask from the developing countries and from the middle-income countries in particular to have their share. But there, that's why it's so important that when we ask that to them that it's also clear that the industrialized world is ready to take the largest part of uh, what is needed. and That's why we propose in our reports that with a 50% all over reduction by 2050, 80% of that would have to be taken by the industrialized world and 20% by what is now called the developing world, but which is really mainly
0: China, India, Brazil, and some others. Which gets to the big point about who pays for all of this. I believe the Stern Commission had an estimate of net costs from 5%. One scenario had even net savings. The median cost of greenhouse gas stabilization at around 550 parts per million is about 1% of GDP. The big question in Washington and is struggles, is who ultimately is going to pay for this? Who in the United States and who among countries? And how do you think that's going to play out? D- doesn't it sound
2: like a bargain to you? I mean, 1% of GDP to stay alive and keep the earth for <laughs> our children and grandchildren. I mean, I'd make that bet. I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like such a big bet to make. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I'd flip it around. Who wouldn't be willing to pay that? Well, we were talking back earlier that some of our political leadership is backing away from these very laws. There's, what, nine or ten bills in the Congress to reduce or stabilize greenhouse gas emissions. And what does
2: that make them?
0: Yeah. So if, they're, if the politicians aren't leading, then how's it going to happen?
3: Well I think Larry said a few minutes ago that the states are ahead of the federal government here and we have the power to set the example and and move the ball forward. It's and and we've seen in other other um policy areas where the feds have been slow and, and have caught up, you know, X years later. So I, I think it's it's it just makes it more important to to get the policies right so that you attract investment. Um I, I think that it will be a a great day and it's and it's going to happen shortly when we have companies out there that are as famous as Google that are saving the planet i mean it's it's just you know you can make a career in this you can you can innovate in a way that um eliminates some of these problems or or at least contributes to 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 their elimination um and you can you can you can do that in a way that you're not uh, sacrificing your own quality of life and ability to feed your children. And so I think infusing sort of our whole entrepreneurial capitalistic model with this this environmental ethic and with, with the possibility for building a career in and, and a, and a famous you know, series of companies is, is going to be a, a great inflection point because then you'll attract more talent. You'll get people that decide not to go, you know, work in, in the cell phone industry and decide to work here and not to pick on the cell phone industry because, of course, that's been um, a huge advance for, for people all over the world. But we do need to attract that talent and and that will help pay the bills.
4: I'd like to add one more thing. I, I don't see this come up too often, but I think it's a really important concern when we look at, uh, for the federal government, um, looking at security issues. And when you think about a lot of these areas in question, they're going to be really affected by rising sea levels and so on, and drought, There's a, uh, a lot of them are politically unstable regions, and now you're talking about displacing tens of millions of people. Um, in the interest of security, it seems that it would be a terrific investment to try and help these areas and avoid future conflicts of... of Similar to what we might be going, sure. going Ed, right
1: now. I, I think it's a very important point because it points at the price that we're paying today already. Uh, look at the conflict in Darfur; yeah. it's very much related to the droughts right. and to people um, competing for fertile uh, soil and where to go with the cattle, etc. Or well, let me take an example uh, close at my heart: uh, the Netherlands. Uh, we're paying three billion dollars a year to defend just a tiny piece of land of 40,000 uh, square kilometers. And when you project that at a larger picture of Bangladesh, or even if you want to come closer home, lower Manhattan, and I even don't know how it's here in California, it's, it's something, or the Sierra Nevada measures, that you have to take here in, in, in terms of your water provision. We're paying already a big price these days. The, the question is, do we just pay a price to run behind effects, or do we take the kind of preventive measures that will, in the end, um, have, uh, create a sustainable basis? And that's what we uh, need to look for.
2: And, and if I could, Greg, there's, sure. there's even the cost that we can't anticipate. Um, everybody's worried, and rightfully so, about bird flu. But we don't realize that there have been 39 novel emerging communicable diseases, new viruses that have jumped species from animals to humans, any one of which could become a pandemic, many of which have become epidemic. And the reason they're jumping species is because we're running out of water, because with rising temperature, the Anopheles mosquito goes in different places, but so does dengue and hemorrhagic fever. And our way of life is more at peril from the things that we can't even see or articulate than it is from losing a few conveniences. I I, I think we've got it out of whack I think that we, 1% or 5% would be a bargain to preserve a world in which these unseen horrors don't get a chance to, to gain a TOEFL.
0: But do you think the existing political situation in the U.S. will recognize and act upon those, those costs in a system that's always – this is a long-term problem, and they're, they're a short-term institution?
2: The last time I read, it was a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it's up to us and to your listeners. We, we need to understand how um, – what this moment of time is. And we need to fully understand what the consequences of inaction are. I'm confident that this country will do the right thing when enough of us understand that.
0: We're discussing global climate change at the Commonwealth Club, and our panelists are Larry Brilliant, Executive Director of Google.org, Ad Melkert, Undersecretary General of the United Nations, Nancy Funn, Managing Director of J.P. Morgan, and Andrea Gardner, Sustainable Solutions Manager at CH2M Hill. I'm Greg Dalton with the Commonwealth Club. The question of nuclear power inevitably comes up, and we have several here for Nancy and for Larry. Uh, does nuclear power part of a renewable portfolio?
2: You know, um, I, I think I heard it said best, um, even if you're for nuclear power, uh, you have to be able to get over two hurdles, One, is there truly enough uranium in the world that if you were able to exploit it all, you could actually make a measurable difference in the need for renewable energy? I think most experts say there's just not enough uranium. The the second uh, thing that I've heard is that if you could build a nuclear power plant that produced electricity, funded entirely by private capital, without government subsidies, and make it price competitive, with any of the other renewable energies we're talking about, then let's have the conversation. But until those two threshold barriers are met, it isn't even a topic of conversation for me.
0: Right. Anyone who builds a nuclear power plant, there's a federal exemption from risk. that They can't be sued. There's caps. That's a huge risk subsidy for building, underwriting the, the price of a nuclear power plant. Nancy?
3: Well, it, this just brings up the larger... Um, Issue is that we have a lot of subsidies for for other technologies that renewables don't have, and and, and we're struggling to get an ITC um, passed in Congress that would help renewables uh, when nuclear and 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 fossil fuel based energy sources really, uh, it's a very unlevel playing field. In is, terms is that of a,
0: sorry, an investment tax credit ITC?
3: sorry, yes, extending the investment tax credit to apply to investments in renewables is a very popular idea, but just... Is, has not gone through the Congress yet because of some of the, the political issues that we've been talking about. Uh, but I, I agree with Larry that nuclear, given all of the, the requirements around it, is not a viable uh, cost-effective technology uh, when, you, when you compare it to others. And I would like to see much more of our, if we're, if we're going to have incentive dollars, we should throw some of them at, at these renewables because in the long run that's going to have a much better cost-benefit equation.
0: What other financing mechanisms could be brought? There's a question here about uh, uh, renewable energy, muni bonds for renewable energies. What other sorts of financing mechanism would you like to see as a business person uh, to to spur the investment in direct capital both here in the United States and, and overseas?
3: Well, certainly investment tax credit uh, would be one of them. There's there's such an abundance of opportunities. Um, at the local level, uh, recently in the city of Berkeley here, uh, the the mayor and the city council decided to uh, take away the upfront expense of, of uh, installing solar and instead add it as a surcharge to your property tax over an extended period, which is a huge innovation to, to get rid of one of the fundamental barriers that people often have is that upfront cost cost, which is fairly substantial uh, to installing solar, so that's a great uh, policy innovation, and, and apparently um, that city is getting calls from all over the world. You know, how did you do that? How how can we replicate it? Now, it will. I'm sure it will be more difficult to imp- implement than it is to to just describe it. But that that's an approach that you know could happen at the local level, uh, and there's everything in between. I mean, the, these um, AB32 regulations that will be that are being worked on, the renewable portfolio standards. Um, certainly there are issues relating to... Transmission, uh, because as you get into these large-scale solar plants, uh, which can generate, you know, the hundreds of megawatts and eventually gigawatts of power that really move the needle, uh, in, at least in in many parts of the U.S., especially California, we we have not invested in in, in transmission infrastructure to pull that, to take that power to where it's needed, and so that that's something that public policy should really begin to address and bring in FERC and the the, the various. Uh, agencies that need to take care of that.
0: Most of the, a lot of questions here about, or some about the, the presidential uh, election here in the United States, and most of the candidates have ideas here for directing billions of dollars to various types of, of new energy, renewable energy. I think it goes as high as $150 billion from Obama. Um, what do you think about the effectiveness of the government going in and sort of Investing tens of billions of dollars in specific areas beyond the tax credits you've talked about and some of the other things.
3: Well, I'm I'm not familiar with the specific proposals. Um, I would just say that it's probably a good idea to create incentives for the private sector to to innovate and invest rather than having the government choose the winners and losers.
0: Would you agree with that, Larry?
2: I'd like to see a tremendous amount of investment in research and development, in career building and young people, engineers especially, who go into this field. I think that's the proper use of government and government funds. The last I saw was this administration is spending less than half a billion dollars total in R&D in renewable energy. If you think about that compared to other expenditures, it would make you scratch your head a little bit.
4: Actually, yeah. Larry touched on a, a good point, which is the shortfall of engineers that we're going to be experiencing in the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, I think we're going to be something like 6 million engineers short and a significant uh, number are going to be retiring, again, over the next 10 to 15 years and taking a lot of that experience with them. And we, we actually desperately need to get more investment in our engineering education.
1: Could, add- could I just add, I mean, I'm not going to say anything about presidential candidates. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm quite lucky, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but could, could I just add that in, in any um, um, uh, earmark of money, the uh, support to the poorest developing countries uh, would not be forgotten. I mean, we have uh, made a calculation that around $86 billion per year will be needed worldwide in order to support the poorest countries in bringing their infrastructure uh, up to date, in protecting people, in insuring people. Uh, That's a lot more than is at this moment available, and obviously it would be very important that the United States and other uh, major donors would contribute uh, to that, really on top of what, what, what they're doing now for development cooperation, and I would hope that that also would be part of the promise of any candidate
0: with any chance to win. Though historically the United States is reluctant to fund the U.N., it has a low proportion of of foreign aid compared to its economy. Uh, We haven't been the most generous country in that respect, but you you think that can change?
1: Well, I think that when people would see uh, the role that the U.N. and the Secretary General are now playing to bring all parties together in Bali... And when people would start, uh, would be aware that this is really also in the interest of any American citizen, I think that could help a lot also to make understand how important it is to have an institution like the UN, even if you don't always like what you see. But that may be the case with other institutions as well.
3: I would would just add that I, I think that as a country, you know, we're seeing on a daily basis the impact of the expenditures for supporting military campaigns that many of us question. And when you see, you know, a child health bill held up in Congress and because they, they don't want to spend that money, and then you see how much is spent in, in these military activities, I think Americans are, you know, increasingly disturbed with that, because obviously investments in prenatal health, child health, are some of the best investments you can make.
2: Um, I've been very impressed with a campaign called the One Campaign, which was started by Bono. And this is a campaign which has 5 million Americans as members already. And they have a pledge um, that they have circulated to all the campaigns for everyone running for president of the United States. And they've been very successful in getting the candidates, Republicans and Democrats, to sign on that if they are elected president, they will do exactly what Ad said in terms of supporting the U.N. I'm extremely pleased that they've added that they would also pledge to fight against malaria, fight for malaria eradication, and fight for climate adaptation for the poorest countries who have the least resources to fight. I think that's the best way to get social activism, um, and I'm hopeful that that will be successful.
0: One of the reasons that we don't know so much about the candidates' positions on climate change is they don't talk about it very much, and that's because um, any political operative will tell you if you pull about the environment, it falls lower down after Iraq, the economy, et cetera. You start to talk about it as energy security, it, it starts... It starts to rise. So that raises the question about are we framing this issue as climate change? Is that the right way to frame it? If you really want that political engagement or that political leadership you've been talking about. Well, I I think it
1: will become a big issue after uh, next month's meeting that every candidate will have to say to to which extent or in which way are you going to commit the United States to an international agreement and with which Kind of objectives, and then the the objectives of the act here in California or other examples would certainly um, play an important role in that uh, debate.
3: I would Anything? just I would just add that um, increasingly people. I mean, I, most people when you look at the elections the the economy is often very central in in how the outcomes if you look historically but i think people are increasingly get it getting it that the environment is very key to economic prosperity and that you can um, you can turn around a lot of environmental problems at the same time that you're building a new a new source of economic vitality. So I, I think we'll see more of it, and and to the extent that we can tie it to these economic issues, I think we'll we'll be successful politically because um, just that's where a lot of decisions are made is based on economic issues. Andrea?
4: I I think, though, that there's still, especially when you get to the middle part of the U.S., there's, there's still a very deep perception that the environment is this, this thing over there where there's some grass and some bugs and bunnies, and it doesn't really have anything to do with me on a day-to-day basis. And I think we really do need to change the way we frame it. It has a lot to do with the water that comes out of your tap, your national security and things like that. We, we really need to make it more direct.
0: There's also a perception that it's the environmentalism is sort of an upper class Caucasian concern, and it's easy to talk about here at the Commonwealth Club in Bay Area, but it's perceived very differently elsewhere. Uh, Nancy,
3: I, that's a. So- a common perception, but I, I think that just so much is happening to, to change that, and, and issues of environmental justice are being addressed. Uh, you have our mayor here in San Francisco uh, working to make Hunter's Point uh, an environmental business zone. You have um, the, old, the enterprise zone in Richmond, where the old Ford plant uh, from World War II, where Rosie the Riveter actually worked, uh, is now uh, the headquarters for PowerLight, uh, which is a division of SunPower, uh and these are these are um, companies and projects that are bringing uh, economic activity to low-income neighborhoods creating green collar jobs um, so I think that there is some good news happening that that is that is recognizing that we need to address the disparities of, of income related to environmental degradation.
0: Uh, I think this is for Mr. Melker. There's a question here to talk a little more about solutions or mechanisms that will allow the developed countries to aid emissions reductions in developing countries. You know, how what's going to happen here? How can we specifically help uh, reduce carbon emissions in China, India, et cetera, as they uh, became, become bigger emitters?
1: Well, I think there the, the, the carbon uh, credit trading is very important. It's, it's still a, a complex market uh, to trade, basically, uh, between uh, the, the um, investments in developing countries uh, and offsetting that to the, um, uh, the way that the industrialized countries can then have part of their share transferred to uh, other countries. Uh, We we are trying to make that uh, more to the advantage also of uh, poorer countries, because right now it's mainly China and Mexico and Brazil that are benefiting from that trading scheme. Uh, But it has shown, uh, particularly in China, I think that it can have a very good uh, effect. And the other thing is transfer of technology, particularly to the poorest uh, uh, countries. And that would uh, be helped a lot by pricing, uh, really, uh, carbon emissions at the right level so that it gets economically uh, interesting uh, to invest and also to sell uh, technology. So there's a combination of um, policy measures and market incentives needed to uh, engage also the developing countries. Andrea?
4: I'd add there's, there's a lot of small-scale opportunities, I think, as well for technology transfer. Um, one example that we were involved in um, in rebuilding after the tsunami in Sri Lanka, um, going back in and helping design and build some of the buildings actually took the opportunity to uh, help launch a school uh, locally and, and train local people in green building design and construction. So they were trained on the job and in creating this school, and then they could continue to educate uh, people locally so they could um, implement that technology right there.
0: Andrea, maybe you can tell us a little more about, about BC3. It's been a couple years since that was, that was formed, some companies getting together saying they're going to do some good things. How much have they actually done so far, and is that kind of you know, collaboration going to really yield results fast enough to address the, the challenge we're talking about?
4: I think so. It was actually officially launched uh, March of this year. Okay. Um, after they lined up members and, and uh, got some initial work done. And we spent the last few months, um, as I described at the beginning, developing the framework, finalizing the principles, uh, setting up the working groups, figuring out how we'd want to um, share the efforts, um, how to set it up financially, and so on. And most of that has been resolved. I should add that we wanted to take the time to, to set it up in such a way that it would be a, a replicable model. So it took a little extra time. Uh, we certainly have members who are ready to dive in and do something now, and certainly members have already done some things on their own. And I think in January you should start to see a lot more activity. Um, we should be rolling out the new website. Uh, there will start being monthly panels uh, and meetings to share a specific experience. Uh, one of the a couple of the first things we're going to be doing one is a, a panel and some case studies on um, how to how to make changes if you lease your office space. So a lot of the companies that are members do not own their buildings and and don't have any direct ability to, to, for instance, change their lighting, change their HVAC system. So a panel to show how you can actually work with your building managers to make those changes. Uh, And we're going to have another one on setting up um, to address transit, how do you set up green fleets, get car sharing going, things like that, the range of transit programs that are available.
0: There's a question here from the audience for you about whether compliance is voluntary in this regime, if there are any penalties for not meeting, complying with, with this compact.
4: It's actually one of the more challenging questions we're dealing with. Uh, is part of the, One of the principles is um, internal implementation, setting a baseline, setting targets, and, and developing a plan and implementing it to reduce emissions. Um, and we're still uh, discussing that right now specifically what we want to set there's a lot of, a lot of the members are already involved in uh, you know, California Climate Action Registry, um, Sustainable Silicon Valley and some other organizations that have set through which they've already set targets and so we may just uh, roll some of that in so people don't have to do, uh, duplicate their reporting um, so that is something still under discussion
0: one question here is that: What would you most like to see in terms of changes in lifestyle, changes in policy, changes in consumer practices? What would you each like to to see that, that to really make a difference in this?
2: <laughs> you, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, this conversation has almost come completely full circle. We, when Ed was talking about the cap and trade system, I was thinking that what that really is is um, it's a system that allocates a certain amount of pollution per person or per company or per country, which was the moral question that we began this conversation with, which is, is there a moral right to pollute? Right. And so the cap-and-trade system institutionalizes the moral right to pollute but not to pollute too much. <laughs> and, and I think that that notion has under it utilitarianism and a concept that we're all in it together and that we we'll each have only this much that we can do of good or harm. I think that's what I'd like to see happen. I'd like to see this notion that it's one world, we're one species, and we're all in it together. Everything else is secondary. If we understand that the consequences of climate change are because we don't share the belief that we're all in it together, we'll continue using the atmosphere like a toilet. We have to believe that, and that's the change I'd like to see.
0: Nancy?
3: I'd like to see us let go of our our um... belief that energy use is is tied to coal and fossil fuel and and really build a renewables future and and not not have these doubts that you know we can't get to the gigawatt level and we can't make an imprint we just have to get started and i believe that it will happen that that it will scale and that we will be able to bring the cost down and, and make it more widely available and coincident with that it would, I would also love to see us let go of this notion that cars need to be fueled by gasoline and, and really look at electricity and other approaches, especially solar-powered electric vehicles, to me, uh, seem like a, a, a real uh, solution and, and one that we can, we can work toward, at least in a big part of the world. Andrea?
4: I'd even go beyond that and say to realize we don't even need cars. It would be a wonderful world <laughs> if we didn't need a car. You could walk to your job, walk to stores, sort of along that line. I, my wish list would probably be to, to have people realize that consumption, in our consumption culture and our consumption economic model does not equal quality of life. And, in, and in fact, I think people who kind of get off the consume a lot, buy a lot and keep up with the Joneses actually experience a much better quality of life. And, uh, it would be great to see that shift
0: there's even some talk and some most of the pollution regimes have been focused on source of production and emission there's some talk now about looking at carbon, uh, at the consumption side, taxing consumers rather than the emitters, the factories in China, because an emitter-based regime creates an incentive to stick the dirty factories somewhere else, whereas if you focus on consumption, then you quickly get to the developed economies in rich countries and states like California look at the ultimate drivers of demand for, for, for that production. Sorry, Ed, what would you like to see to wrap up?
1: Well, this would certainly be interesting, but it's very complicated, and certainly very complicated to apply that at a global level. I would actually like to add, because everything that was mentioned is relevant, but I would like to add the aspect of solidarity. I mean, to some, it may sound as an old-fashioned word, but it's very, very modern, really literally needed in terms of addressing climate change as we're all part of it. We're all in it. Nobody can escape. So solidarity is the only way that uh, would bring us uh, to uh, a kind of sustainability over a long period of time. And it's also solidarity between generations that we need because what we're talking here in terms of solutions is about things that, pardon me, but most of us won't see with our own eyes anymore. It's about our children, it's about our grandchildren, and it's about the children and grandchildren of the people living in, in other parts uh, of the world. And uh, that's uh, what uh, has made the authors of, of our report uh, also select this, this great uh, quote of Martin Luther King when he said, uh, where do we go from here, chaos or community? And I think it's extremely well fit for addressing this problem and seeing the way forward.
0: And a fitting end to our program. Please thank our panelists. Thank you. We've been discussing global climate change at the Commonwealth Club with Larry Brilliant, Executive Director of Google.org, Ad Melkert, Undersecretary General of the United Nations, Nancy Fund, Managing Director of JP Morgan, and Andrea Gardner, Sustainable Solutions Manager at CH2M Hill. I'm Greg Talton, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.